Seaside. I'm Tamara Keith, and I'm at a family fun center. And uh, I'm here with my brother. I've dragged along a member of my family. This is my brother, Donovan. Hey, guys. How's it going? This edition of Seaside is all about family. And uh, my brother and I have just gotten some tokens to go play an all-time family favorite game. Ski-ball. Ski-ball. Oh. We're going to do it. I don't know how many hours our family has spent playing ski ball. All I know is we spent a lot of time on Balboa Island or the shore nearby playing ski ball. It was like, I never got any better at either. I don't think it's a, a, a game of skill necessarily. But it has the illusion of skill. Like you'd think that you could get the 100 spot, but I never do. Yeah, and how many little rings do I have and little erasers? Um, <laughs> the things that you can win playing ski ball. My question is when are you going to stop wearing them? Thanks a lot. <laughs> Here's another question. What are future generations of Keiths going to think of us? Well, I think that they're going to think, wow, those were the Keiths that were really living and doing it. Like, I want to be like those Keiths. And they're going to think, those Keiths sure recorded a lot of stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Lots of family movies and the audio tapes and every episode of B-Side, it seems. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Sarah Neal, she's a B-Side crew member, she found an old tape that her grandfather left behind. She didn't really know him growing up very well, but now she sure does. My grandfather, Ebert Whipple, was born in southern Indiana in 1910. He always carried chewing gum in his shirt pocket. His left hand was paralyzed from polio. He wore pressed trousers every day. He talked about dying a lot, which I hated, and he always called me Sally. He died in 1989, and that's all I managed to remember about him until my mom started finding messages he left behind. I grew up two hours north of my grandparents, and I visited them every summer at their house on the corner of Washington and Market Streets, the same house where my mother lives today. She calls me often. I found something, she says. And she tells me about a collection of name tags that say, Hello, my name is Ebert Whipple, class of 1938, carefully pasted to the inside of a closet. Or a note he scribbled to her on a page of a book she gave him in 1969. It said, Reread in 1984, thank you. This is a wonderful present. Two months ago, she found a message for me. Good morning, Sally. This is your maternal grandfather speaking to you this morning, Hebert Whipple, from a cozy little broadcasting uh, recording uh, studio in 1007 West Market Street, Salem, Indiana. Today is the 10th day of January, 1974. Now, if you think it's easy, you ought to sit down with one of these microphones sometime and try talking to a two-year-old girl that isn't present. Now, sir, it's not the easiest thing in the world to sit down with a microphone and just kind of talk about something that you don't have any business talking about. Apparently, back in 1975, when I was a toddler, my grandfather sat himself down on the front porch with his tape recording equipment and started talking. I think he expected my mom to find the tapes a little sooner, maybe when I was in college, certainly before I got married. There are advantages in 
marrying a poor, ambitious boy who will make a success and be a self-made man, that's pretty good kind. There are also some advantages to marrying a smart, alert, athletic young fellow that uh, can go in business with his dad or uh, uncle and uh, eventually inherit a million dollars. There's some advantages to that. Is anybody still listening? Everybody's still listening. Hold up your hand. <laughs> ah, there it is. When I hear this, I picture him sitting on that porch, thinking about how scary it will be for me to make a very big decision at a time in life when I haven't seen or done enough to feel quite qualified to make it. And I hear that he wanted to be there for me. All of a sudden, it doesn't matter if he's old-fashioned and the tapes are a couple of years late. They're like a little valentine to me. A chance to know my grandfather as a real, tangible person, as an adult. I suppose that your grandma Whipple and I have had as happy a marriage as anybody could be. This is my favorite story. Now, it wasn't always smooth sailing. <laughs> it's on the second side of tape two, and it's the one I learned the most from. According to my grandfather, he and my grandmother fought quite a bit when they first got married. So to stop arguing, they decided to alternate being the boss. He got to be in charge the first week, and she took the second. Well, you know, that had some interesting ramifications. It was a lot of fun, you know, a young married couple. If I got a little bit uh, teed off with Louise, I could tell her to go over and stand in the corner for five minutes, and she'd have to go stand there for five minutes. <laughs> oh, that was fun. <laughs> but you must wait until the next week. <laughs> if she told me to go stand in the corner for 10 minutes, then I had to go stand in the corner for 10 minutes. Well, I'll tell you what that finally led to. That finally led to my deciding that um, I'd better be awfully, awfully good to her the week that I was boss, so that the week she was boss, <laughs> she wouldn't take advantage of it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we actually did this. This is really the truth. Some types of humor just aren't available to you when you're young. I don't know if adults hide this stuff or children don't understand it and tune it out. I didn't even know that my grandfather, who seemed so obsessed with death, had a sense of humor. But there it is, recorded for the ages. My dear, sweet grandparents sent each other to the corner. It's beautiful. Before listening to these tapes, I thought the messages my mother found, the note in the book, the name tags plastered to the closet, were my grandfather's way of reassuring himself leaving a reminder of his existence to be found after he died, but I've changed my mind. I think my grandfather left messages behind because he had a lot to share and realized he didn't have enough time left to share it all. Think about it. If you really loved your granddaughter, but she was too little to understand who you were or to understand the advice you had to give, what would you do? I think sitting yourself down on the porch and recording seven hours of tape so she could listen to it when she's 30 works pretty well. Well, anyway, here's best wishes to you. And uh, don't be surprised if you don't agree with everything I say. I didn't say what I had 
had uh, in mind with the idea that it was right. I just wanted you to think about it, draw your own conclusions, make your own decisions, because you're the one that's going to have to live by your choices. I'm not. So make the choices and then abide by them. Make them wisely enough that it won't be too much difficulty to abide by them. And with that in mind, I think I'll say um, good afternoon. Bye now. Younger brother, Donovan. Hey, we are. We're trying to play some skee ball here, and uh, we are not having a very good time of it. Trying to get these balls into these point-numbered holes, and we keep bottoming out. We cannot get any of the high-point scores. That and uh, your skee ball machine here didn't even give you all the balls you deserve. No, and I just put in another coin, and it ate my coin. It's not giving me any balls whatsoever. Yeah. Well, so Sarah Neal was talking about her grandfather. Our next story is about connecting with even more distant relatives. John Peabody picks it up. There was once a time when Luis Ramirez's people claimed as their own some of the most beautiful parts of California's central coast. That was a long time ago. Louise is the chairwoman of the Esalen Nation. Her tribe of 600 people isn't well-known or well-funded or even recognized by the federal government but she takes her responsibilities really seriously. When I went to visit Louise at her home in San Jose, she had just returned from a trip to Pebble Beach. She was there to pick up the remains of one of her ancestors who had been accidentally dug up at a golf course. They didn't tell anybody they were gonna dig. Cypress Point area is well known as an excellent area. They took out this dirt, they took out four loads of soil. When they were dumping the fourth load, someone saw the jawbone. The golf course called the coroner, who called the Native American Heritage Commission. Someone there called Louise and told her she had 24 hours to come and claim the remains. They give it to you in a little tiny bag. So I take it and I take some cotton, white cotton, wrap that in there with some sage and tobacco, um, put them in there, and then I wrap them up in a blanket. When I was there, he, and there's no way of telling if the remains are actually male, was in a box in Louise's living room. It was there that she told me about her efforts to bring back Esalen, which is her native language. Her abalone necklace and earrings clicked together when she spoke, and it was obvious to me how much she was pouring herself into this. How many people do you think know this language? Him and me. Yeah. Right now. <laughs> and, and, and a few words here and there that I tell everybody. That hymn is her mentor from the Breath of Life program at UC Berkeley. It pairs Native Americans with linguists. In a way, there's a very painful irony here. Native Americans having to go back to universities, symbols of colonizing forces, to learn their own languages. No offense, but I think this is what the white man did to us. They destroyed us. 
But yet, look, there are some who are giving it back to us, who understood what they did and are willing to give it back to us to help us. I had assumed that learning Esalen was a way for Louise to connect with her ancestors in some kind of spiritual way. But then she told me that her daughter had died of leukemia years ago when she was 14, and it became kind of clear that there was much more to her efforts. Maybe her loss inspired her to start thinking about her own legacy. It seemed kind of lonely to me, though, to learn a language that only one other person can speak. Is it lonely to learn the language that that you can speak with one other person? It is, because like I said, I want to start using it daily, and I just want, you know, keep on going, and I can't. I mean, because it's, I know I sound crazy walking around the house talking to myself, you know, and saying, oh, this is what it is, you know. But I know we'll get there. You know, it's, it's what I can leave. After she went through the program, Louise wrote a children's book in Esalen and a poem about learning her language. She read both of them to me. The book is dedicated to her family, including her daughter who passed away. It's giving back to the kids. And, you know, this is like confirmation of your life. Because it was, is that not what all of us want, is to let people know that we existed? And so when you do it in memory of people, they existed. That was part of your life. You continue. But that book's going to be up there. And when somebody goes researching and they're going to say, oh, look at these people knew who they were. And that's what's important. Maybe learning Esalen is a way for Louise to make sure her people are remembered. Or maybe it's a way for her to connect to her ancestors in a way that's more meaningful than picking up remains from a golf course. Whatever the reason, she's totally committed to learning a language that only one other person speaks, with the hope that someday she'll be able to talk to other people in the Esalen Nation in Esalen. Nishwal that has been dissected, analyzed, and questioned to determine if Esalen people were intelligent. But the words are alive. They thought we would be extinct. John Peabody produced that story. I'm Tamara Keith, and uh, I'm here with my brother Donovan Keith, and he is loading coins into a uh, an air hockey machine here. On this edition of B-Side, we're talking all about family, and so an obvious choice, we are at a family fun center and a uh, little air hockey action. Well, that didn't go so well. Uh, my younger brother just, you know, totally scored. While we uh, finish this match that <laughs> looks like it's not going to go much longer, check out this story from Sarah Bond. She's a mom, mother to Max, who is an adorable, very intelligent little guy. Uh, but the way he got here was, was a little challenging. She had to deal with gestational diabetes, preterm labor, and five weeks of bed rest before getting to the big day. So here's Sarah Bond as she takes us along for the ride. Let's see, it's um, 
about 8.45 a.m. on uh, Wednesday, May 19th, and lying here in bed, having a lot of um, cramping and a few contractions here and there. So in the back of my mind, I'm wondering, oh, is this going to be the day? I don't know what this birth may look like because of having gestational diabetes, because of having had all this preterm labor. I had sort of made peace with the birth being anything. You know, it could be a natural birth. It could be an emergency C-section. You know, it, it could be induced. It could be anything. So maybe thinking about birth might just be too challenging. I don't know. I don't know. It's Tuesday, May 18th, and uh, Eric and I are here at Alta Bates Hospital. We're in antepartum testing, and this is our regular Tuesday appointment to come in and have the baby's heartbeat monitored to make sure he's doing okay. Looks great. <laughs> Anything else to say about this readout? Happy active baby yeah. with a few mild contractions. I didn't even feel them. No We're predictions. Yeah. No predictions, huh? No, no predictions. Hmm. I'm not feeling a thing. You don't feel these? No. Yeah. I mean, looks very mild. <sighs> Let's see. It's Thursday, June 3rd. It's about 6 o'clock in the morning. And uh, I'm at 39 weeks in pregnancy. I've been told that if I don't have this baby by next Wednesday, I will be induced means going into the hospital and having an IV of Pitocin put in or something like that. And uh, in that case, then, you know, there'll definitely be a baby here in less than a week. Hi. Hi. You going to labor? Today. Oh, finally. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's good. Do I you sign him? Mm-mm, he so does. I'll sign him in. Okay, his, his name and then your name. Okay. I'll sign <laughs> I never know what I think it, never. Uh-huh, we knew, we told, we've been telling you, I've been telling you we're coming over here soon now. Yeah, they're going to induce oh, okay. me because he's so he, big. You don't need one, he's, he's special, he needs to stick. <laughs> Make a right and a left and good luck. Okay, thank, thank you. you. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. So, uh, the nurse put an IV in and she, um, then started the Pitocin, and about, a, I don't know, 30 seconds into it, I had a massive contraction, and I kind of had two monitors on me. I had a fetal heartbeat monitor and a contraction monitor, and uh, I started to say to the nurse, I, I'm having a contraction, I'm having contraction, and she was holding the fetal heartbeat monitor in place, and then she started moving it around, and I was in the midst of the contraction, so I didn't quite realized that she wasn't picking up a heartbeat for the baby and then she found a heartbeat but it was very slow and at that point she hit a button on the wall and a voice came over and said do you need help and she said yes and that's when I knew I was going to have a pretty unusual birth Hello, my love. <laughs> Hello, my 
mother. No. <laughs> You're a mom. Uh-huh. Yep. Well, here we are. What's it is on? June 4th. <laughs> it is June 4th. Our boy was born at 5.17 p.m. 7 pounds, 4 ounces, 19 and 3 quarter inches. Mom's happy. Mm, well, mom's really sweet. wacky. Mom's really wacky right now. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and we'll go over and see baby uh, baby in a minute. You did great. Thank you. We had to go C-section. Just a couple minutes after they put the Pitocin in. Not just any C-section. Emergency C-section. Well, very, very rapid. Rapid C-section. <laughs> in the moment, you know, while we were dealing with the baby's heartbeat and everything, I refused to get scared. For for one second, I thought, oh, this, this might not turn out well. But overall, I stayed really calm. And when the baby came, I was just delighted. And I said to my OB afterwards, you know, I could look on this as a really bad experience and say, oh, this was traumatic and not what I wanted. But instead, I chose to look at it as a really positive, joyful experience. Because although we had some stress and and turmoil in having the baby get through safely, you know, the end result is exactly what everybody wants, which is a healthy baby and healthy mommy. So it was really great. And It was just extraordinary. My husband was delighted that I didn't have to go through labor. (laughs) So that's the story of Max's birth. That was B-side Sarah Bond. Game over, and uh, it looks like I won. Yeah, it, it does look like you won, Tamara. Are, are you trying to imply that I like rigged it because I'm the host of B-side, and I you're would, just the little brother? I would never imply that the host of B-side would dare to rig uh, air hockey. Yeah, you won fair and square. I just don't want to admit it. <laughs> Well, that's all for this edition of B-Side. Please check out our website. It's bsideradio.org. That's the letter B-S-I-D-E radio.org. There you can learn more about our show, our crew, and also check out the YouTube video that my brother and I made out here at the Family Fun Center.